And by the way, did, have you ever noticed how a lot of bald men still carry a comb? You ever notice that? I guess they just can't bring themselves to part with it. All right. Started your day off well, didn't I? <laughs> All right. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. One verse, very powerful statement, right? Jesus taught discipleship can be costly. We've already been going over that the last few weeks. That's one of the major themes we've been discussing you got to pick up your cross and carry it. you got to deny yourself. you got to understand there's going to be hardship as a Christian. Living a Christian life is not easy. There's a cost to it. But my, what a glorious reward we have waiting for us, right? <clears throat> for us today, as were at that time, we just read the verse, we live in an adulterous and sinful generation, right? Just turn on the news, right? We, we see stuff going on that is just awful. It's a lost world, a dying world. And it can be hard to live as a Christian in it, right? And sometimes we can be tempted to be ashamed. We can be tempted to be embarrassed, right? As those in the world ridicule us, as those in the world mock us, as those in the world try to weaken, weaken our resolve to follow Jesus. He warns us not to be ashamed because, you know, he's coming again. He has promised that. And as Christians, what else do we have if we don't have the promises, right? We have a promise from God that he will return, and those who remain faithful to him in the end will receive their wonderful and glorious reward. What a great promise to have. So we have to keep on keeping on, per se, right? The old cliche. What have we got to be ashamed about, though? Have you, have you ever been that way? Have you ever been in a group of people at work, at school, who started mocking Christians, and you felt like you couldn't say anything, you didn't want them to know? You know, kind of like Peter when he denied Christ three times. Not that you're denying him, man. But maybe you're kind of embarrassed to say anything. You ever felt that way? Have you ever been that way? Let me give you some statements here that might help you in a situation. This might be something that you might want to put on the forefront of your mind. Perhaps every day at work. John the Baptist said he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nathaniel, one of the disciples, said he was the Son of God, the King of Israel, John 1:49. Nicodemus said he was a teacher come from God, John 3, 2. You remember the 5,000 when we discussed it, they said, truly he is the prophet who is to come into the world, John 6, 14. Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, John 6 and 69. Thomas, old doubting Thomas, what did he say? My Lord and my God, John 20, 28. Paul says he's the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6, 15. John said he is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of earth, Revelation 1. 
Jesus even made statements about himself that you got to consider. You need to remember. He said, I am the bread of life, John 6, 35. I am the light of the world, John 8, verse 12. I am the door, John 10, verse 9. I am the good shepherd, John 10, verse 11. I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. 25. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14 and 6. I am the true vine, John 15 and 1. And finally, I am the great I am, a declaration that he is the eternal being, the one that is God, John 8, 58. <clears throat> the veracity of these statements, right? The truth of what's been said has been established by what? Resurrection, right? He said he was going to have to suffer. He said he was going to be put to death. And then he would be raised again on the third day. We have hundreds of witnesses to the fact that he did that. Thereby making his statements true. We have that in our knowledge, in our faith, in our soul. If you ever feel like you're ashamed of Jesus, maybe you need to remember some of these statements. Consider what some others have said. H.G. Wells, famous historian. I think he wrote some books you might know about. I am an historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. He's, uh, he's been considered by many as the center of the universe, even those who don't believe. He taught Socrates, famous philosophers, taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, Aristotle for 40, Jesus only for three years. Yet, the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these men who are considered to be some of the greatest philosophers of all time. Jesus painted no pictures. Yet some of the finest paintings of Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, you heard of those guys, right? Received their inspiration from him. You ever notice that? That most of their sculptures and pictures are about Jesus or biblical characters? Jesus wrote no poetry, but Dante, Milton, and scores of other the world's greatest poets were inspired by him. Jesus composed no music. Still, Hayden, Handel, Beethoven, Bach, and Mendelssohn reached their highest perfection of melody in the hymns, symphonies, and oratories they composed in his praise. Every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by Jesus, this humble carpenter of Nazareth. When my kids were in school, they were in chorus, and they'd give a Christmas time uh, concert, and they always ended it with Handel's Messiah. And we would all stand at the end to hear the Hallelujah Chorus. And man, if you didn't feel moved by that, hmm. interesting, isn't it? That even in a secular school that will not teach anything about religion, they're going to have a presentation that will move you beyond imagination. When properly considered, we shouldn't be ashamed. We know too from Matthew that Jesus taught some things and warned some things about hell. Right? 
Jesus taught he's the only way to salvation, John 8. He taught that few would be saved, not even some who believe. He taught that one must believe and be baptized to be saved, Mark 16, 15, and 16. You have to consider his words too, right? They are the words of God, John 3 and 34. They are the spirit and they are the life, John 6 and 63. They are the words of eternal life. He said, I give you eternal life. I can show you the words for eternal life. I can show you what you need to do. There are words by which mankind will be judged. Oh, wait a minute. Jesus is just lovey-dovey, right? He came to accept us all, and he did. He brought all to the table, but he also gave everybody a warning too, didn't he? There's going to be a judgment. They are the words which, when obeyed, lead to answered prayer. Talked about that many times. They are the words which give peace in a troubled world. What do people do when stuff happens? They tend to start getting on their knees, don't they? They can ignore it for months, and then that something bad will happen, and they start praying. Light of such power, how can we be ashamed of who he is? Probably considered, we have no reason to be ashamed of Jesus, of who he is, who what he's done, what he's doing, what he may one day do, or of his words, what they are, what they mean, and what they can accomplish in our lives. And if we are ashamed of Jesus, he just said right here, he will be ashamed of us. If we live for him and follow his words, 2 Thessalonians 1, we read that he will glorify us. What a wonderful example. What a wonderful promise. Why do you need to be ashamed? If your faith is great enough that you can believe he's coming again in glory, why wouldn't you stand up for him in a crowd of people who are mocking him? I know it's not easy, is it? Not easy to do that. Not easy to... Go against the flow, right? Jesus says, if you're ashamed of him, he's going to be ashamed of you. All right, moving on. Mark 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And then a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around and saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. All right. In this discussion with the disciples, he makes a remarkable claim, right? First he says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. 
Then he makes a reference to his coming on the day of judgment. To support this claim, he makes another remarkable statement. He says, surely I say to you that there are some standing here today who will not taste death till they've seen the kingdom of God present with power. Matthew 16 says, he says, the son of man coming in his kingdom. If you go over to verse 27 in chapter 9, he says, they, are the, they see all the kingdom of God. What's he referring to here? What's he referring to with this statement? Mark 9 one's a pretty powerful statement. He says, some are standing here that are not going to see death until they see that. Well, there's been a lot of interpretations about it. Some would say he's talking about the transfiguration, which we go on to read about here in Mark 9. Others say he's talking about the resurrection and the ascension. Others will say that it's the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Others will say it's the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in AD 70. Others say it's the second coming. Note, these gospel writers, though, kind of connect that verse with the transfiguration. Did you notice that? He says, after six days here in Mark, he talks about what's about to happen. <coughs> And Luke, he says, about eight days, which was around the equivalent of, a, of about a week later. And they're kind of tying that together. So let's think about that for a minute. He says he's coming in majesty. He's, he's evident, it's evidenced by his transfiguration here. In the Greek, the word is metamorpho or a, tra a change or a transfiguration. And it affected his face and his clothing, right? Face shone like the sun exceedingly light, white, like snow. Peter even wrote that he saw his majesty in 1 Peter. Something else happens here too, and it's very interesting, right? He appears with Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus, he says. Let's turn over to Luke 9 and see what he said about that as well. <clears throat> Luke chapter 9, and verse uh, 31. <clears throat> who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came over and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. So apparently Peter, James, and John had gone to sleep. Remember the other time when that happens? At the end there, kind of outside the garden? Right? What do we got going on here? Well, we got Moses and Elijah there with him, representing what? The law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. Remember the greatest commandment? <clears throat> to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Second, same as the first, love your neighbor as yourself. For on these hang all the law and the prophets. He's being transfigured. We're getting a preview here of Jesus' majesty. Face shone like the sun. 
clothing were as white as snow. Have you ever actually seen anything like that? I wash clothes a lot. It, my white clothes come out and still got spots on them. You just can't get them white. He's being previewed to the disciples here of his kingdom to come, of his majesty, of his second coming. And so, really, if you look at the context, that first verse, some here will not taste death till they see his kingdom coming in power. That's what this is referred to, I believe, that he's connecting these two, and they're getting to see what that kingdom is going to be like, what he's going to be like, his majesty, his power. And it's interesting how they see Moses and Elijah together with him. And you think about it, in Peter and the disciples' minds, he's now being elevated to the level of Moses and Elijah. To the disciples, Moses and Elijah were it. They were the epitome of Judaism, right? The law and the prophets, the greatest, the teachers, and here are Jesus is being elevated to that level, right in front of them. If they ever had any doubts about that, they're seeing a picture of who he is. So much so that Peter says, let's make a tabernacle. Let's make an altar to the, all three of you. And then they hear the voice. Come in the cloud. At this point, Moses and Elijah disappear. The voice says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Moses and Elijah go away, Jesus is it. He's the one you're supposed to hear. Ultimately, the law and the prophets pointed to him. He is above them. He's not on the same level as them. He is on a level by himself. He is God. He is in his kingdom now ruling, reigning. God says, hear ye him. God at one time would speak through the prophets, then through the law. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, let's see what he said about now, the Hebrews writer. Hebrews 1 verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by a son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds it's pretty simple really God says Jesus Christ is my son he is God this is the Messiah the prophet that was coming to the world hear ye him yeah we, we use the prophets and the law we talked about that in our study of Galatians how that was our tutor we know who God is, his character, through those men, through their revelation from God. And we now know God in the flesh through Jesus Christ. He brings us the truth. He brings us the true revelation of God living amongst us. We should follow him. That's what this is all about. Yeah, we read about the transfiguration, and probably we don't really get the meaning there. But this is a fantastic point for the disciples. They are seeing something here that is probably blowing their minds. Well, it says they were afraid, right? Can't imagine. <clears throat> well, what do we need to get out of this? What do we need to understand? 
Jesus is the one. He is the one that came into the world, showed us how to live. We are to become disciples. We are to follow him. We are to believe on him. We are to obey him. And then we live faithfully. We will be raised with him. He's it. Those guys that talked about him in history, there's a reason for that. Well, after being told not to reveal what occurred here, Peter, James, and John had some questions about it. Let's read on. Mark 9, verse 10. It says, So they kept his word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. <laughs> they're, not, they're not understanding. They're hearing this, and they were afraid, blowing their minds. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. All right. They're wondering about what he's talking about, this rising from the dead. I, they don't get it. But they're so afraid, they don't say anything about it. They don't ask about it. They kind of just keep that to themselves. What they do ask about is, who was this Elijah that was to come? Yeah, I guess seeing Elijah there in the, in the moment kind of piqued their memory, right? Kind of, kind of made them think about it. And they're wondering, well, who, who was this Elijah that's to come first? We're not understanding this. Jesus confirmed that the scribes are correct. Elijah had to come first. Matthew 17, of course, we can read who he said, that he says, Elijah has already come. He was John the Baptist. That's what that scripture is referring to. So, in this first case, disciples had some questions but did not ask. In the second case, they did ask and they got their answer. We'll talk about this discipleship thing a little bit. What does that mean to be a disciple? It's a Greek word meaning a learner, right? A follower. Someone who follows another person's teaching what Jesus expects he wants us to do that Matthew 11 28 to 30 to learn from him Matthew 28 to be taught things he commanded what did the apostles expect of the disciples we can read in second Peter that we were to grow in knowledge through their doctrine through their teaching Colossians 1 we were to increase in the knowledge of God and Christ as disciples do we just get baptized and we know it all is that it? No. We're constantly learning all our lives. That's why we have a Bible class on Sunday morning. That's why we have a worship service where we have a preacher come and deliver the Word of God to us to help us understand things. But there's also something about being a disciple, about asking questions, isn't there? Sometimes we still don't get it, right? The role of questions, Jesus said to do it. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Let's see something he said there. Matthew chapter 12, verse 9, he says, Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. Behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? And then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep? 
And if it falls in a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as it was whole. Luke 20, let's turn over there. See another example of questions being asked. Luke 20 and verse 22. I actually start with verse 21. Then he asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar. He said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of his people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. As disciples, we need to ask questions. The disciples asked questions about his parables. We read that back in chapter 4. About Elijah here in, verse, in chapter 9. And we're going to talk about it in a minute. They asked questions about their inability to cast out a demon. We should learn by this, right? We should be inquisitive. Now, I know in an auditorium that's hard to do. It's hard to speak up and ask a question, and I usually can't hear you unless I go back there and listen to you because it don't travel well in here. I think Brother Gene used to say you, you can't have a question session in an auditorium. He was right. It's hard. But if you've got questions, ask them. That's what the Lord wants. And whether that's in a prayer, whether that's asking Kyle what he's talking about after worship service, whether that's coming up and talking to me about it, I may not have the answer, but I'll get in there with you and we'll try to figure it out. That's part of being a disciple. I know it's a fear there. I, we've all been in school. There's a fear to ask questions because afraid you're going to look like you're an idiot, right? Well, what's better? To never ask a question and not know or to ask a question and find out even though you look like an idiot? No, it's not anything wrong with asking a question. And don't ever feel that way in here. If you have a question, I'm very willing to try to answer best I can. If not, don't have an answer, I'll try to find it. Asking questions can make Bible class more interesting, too. Discipleship's a, long, a lifelong learning experience, and that should be part of it. We should always be learning, always growing in our knowledge. All right. We, and, and, of course, we can see two examples there, when they did and when they didn't ask questions, right? No need to go around wondering. Let's read on. Verse 14 of chapter 9 of Mark. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and the scribes disputing with them. Immediately when, he saw, immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him and greeting him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? 
How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus saw that the people came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. The spirit cried out, convulsed, convulsed him greatly, and he came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and, arose, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, there's those questions again, why could we not cast it out? said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. All right. Coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration with his disciples, Jesus finds other disciples embroiled in a controversy. Controversy apparently involving their failed attempt to heal a deaf, mute boy. Now, we already talked about how the disciples were able to perform miracles. Later, we talk about Paul. Remember, he just gave his handkerchief, and they were able to go heal a girl that was sick. Remember all these examples. But for some reason, they're not able to cast this demon out of this boy. So they're having an argument about it. This child has been having seizures his whole life. His father um, it tells him about how he's been thrown in the fire and in the water, right? And they can't do anything about it. Well, <clears throat> what does Jesus say first? He chides the disciples for the lack of faith, right? He chides this generation for their lack of faith. He even says, how long have I got to be with you? How long have I got to bear with this unbelieving generation? Yet his compassion takes over. And he responds to the plea. He says, if the father can believe, all things are possible. The father professes his faith and he begs for more. He even says, help my unbelief. You ever felt that way? That, yeah, I believe, but things are starting to happen. I believe, but why am I going through this? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, he, he did believe. But Jesus says to the disciples, the reason for not being able to remove this demon has to do with the fact that this requires prayer, prayer and fasting. All right. <clears throat> Crowd draws closer. Jesus heals the boy. The demon is cast out. And we need to be careful about misapplying what this means. Right? Interesting point, right? Tempting to take Jesus' words here in isolation. Notice he says, all things are possible to those who believe. Does that mean I can 
have anything I want. I can have anything done just because I believe. Does it mean that everybody should be healed when they pray to be healed because they believe? Hmm. Well, you take that verse by itself, that's kind of what it sounds like, right? But you got to take things in context too. Turn over to 1 John chapter 5. Read something John said. Chapter 5, verse 14, 1 John 5. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Now, I don't want to make you feel like you can't pray for things when you're in need. If you're a believer, you can do that. But you need to think about it in the will of God. Just because you ask something doesn't mean it's going to happen. I know that tend to get to thinking that sometimes and I hate to be Debbie Downer here I guess but things are done in the will by the will of God and I've even heard it said before that one of the reasons for prayer is to line your will up with God's will Brother, a certain person has said you can pray for all things as long as it's on the menu now that's kind of a crass way to say that but the point being is prayers will be answered in accordance with God's will if we're praying, but we're living a life that's not in accordance with God's will, accordance with his commandments, your prayer's not going to mean much, right? Now, I don't mean to send you on a guilt trip. If you're dealing with something, I want you to continue to pray. But there are caveats to it. Remember Hebrews 11.6. Let's read something there. <clears throat> Verse 4 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead still speaks. Remember? Abel's sacrifice was more pleasing to God. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had his testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So our faith has to be there. It has to grow. Romans 10, we hear by the word of God, right? But all prayer, all responses are subservient to God's will. Sometimes we want something to happen. We need to be diligent about it. He just said here, this demon could have been cast out with, great, with prayer and fasting. Well, to fast means to what? Deny yourself, right? Give up eating. Give up whatever that is. And that denotes a time period, right? 
not just you just, I'm not going to eat today, and then it's done. It takes time. Showing humility over the period of time. Perhaps that's kind of what he's getting at here. This one cannot be cast out unless you truly show your humility, unless you truly deny yourself and prove it by what you do. Being in prayer, fasting over a period of time, denying your sustenance, perhaps. Fasting joined with prayer can be a great thing. Now, we don't, we're not commanded to fast today. That's something they did under the Old Testament. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do. It might be something you want to try. There's nothing wrong with doing it. But this is what he's saying. It takes a certain level of humility and a certain level of faith for this to happen. I don't know if the disciples truly got that. I don't know if they understood completely. They at least asked about it, right? They were arguing with the scribes about it. And so that's a good example for us too, right? When we don't understand something fully, ask. Go to God. Talk to fellow believers. Whatever you need to do. Get in the Word. Try to understand. And... If nothing else, from that process, you're going to grow. Your faith is going to be improved. The father who prayed that his faith be given more faith, there's nothing wrong with praying that, but through that process, you're going to have more faith. Your faith is going to be greater. And in the future, you know, things might happen. You're going to be able to handle it better. Perhaps you're going to be able to help someone else better. And who knows what might happen. You may move them out. Because after all, faith, all it takes to do that is faith of a mustard seed, right? All right. Our time is up. Thanks for being here.